Well, good morning, everyone. Today we're in Romans 11, and it's a part of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul reaches back into the Psalms and to Psalm 69. And I thought we'd use that as we pray now, so let's pray. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favour. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. As for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. Lord, please show us your saving ways today. Please teach us deep things about the fact that you want to save and, and the fact that you can uh, as we call out to you. Lord, teach us new and significant and important things about your ways in the world and write them into our hearts and into our wills and into our lives. Amen. Often in my jobs in ministry or in lecturing, when I'm trying to explain an idea from the Bible to people, I often find myself reaching for images of things that persevere, things that just keep on keeping on, that, that go on and on. I find myself thinking about an inflatable toy we had when I was a little kid. Um, it was a clown that's probably stood about waist height and it had sand in its base so that whenever you knocked it over, it would always uh, come back again. I can picture us as a family in our little pool in the backyard and my dad getting a basketball or a soccer ball, something like that, and, and sitting on it and then rolling over and then the ball bursting to the surface and actually you know, breaching the water and, and flying into the air. And we'd say, do it again, do it again. I can picture one of those candles that you might have had on a birthday cake sometime where someone's bought you a trick candle and you blow it out and then it lights again and you blow it out and it lights again. Now when that happens on your birthday cake it can be a bit annoying. But just imagine you had a candle like that that could get blown out but would light itself again. Imagine having a candle like that if you were finding your way in a dark street where you hadn't been before or you were home on a, got home on a windy night and you were searching for your keys to let yourself in. Or you were in a cave feeling lost and frightened or even in a war zone where an enemy was trying to get you lost and disoriented. I think the reason I often find myself reaching for images like the clown or, or the ball bursting forth or a candle that won't go out is because I'm often talking about God and I'm often talking about God's ways and God's purposes for his people in the world. In Romans 9 to 11, it's as though Paul is wrestling with a kind of darkness that God may have lost control of history or have forgotten his promises or lost his way. And here in Romans 11, Paul takes an honest look at the darkness to explore how God is like a candle that never stops shining. So to make sense of our text today, we're going to look at three stories about walking in darkness. One as experienced by Elijah, one as told in Psalm 69, and then one experienced by Paul. And if we notice what's going on when people feel like they're walking in darkness, maybe it's going to help us when that feeling comes to us as well. Now, if you took a quick survey of church growth in the first century ancient world, you might conclude that God was no longer working with Israelites and had turned his attention exclusively to the Gentiles. 
But of course, such a summary won't do. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul remembers another time when somebody did a quick survey and found, the stati found some statistics, but misinterpreted them. The time of Elijah. Elijah, he's almost superhuman and yet all too human. He has a victorious encounter with the priests of Baal and he's been used amazingly by God to demonstrate God's unique sovereign control over lightning and fire and rain. But then Elijah finds himself exhausted, hungry, and he feels painfully alone. He says to the Lord, I'm the only one left. And maybe Paul can relate to that. I mean, he, he's met, uh, met the Lord in a blazing light and he's preached and shared his life and, and at times even bled his way around the Mediterranean. And he might have days when he wonders too, am I the only Jewish person in this city who thinks that Jesus is Lord? Why is it that the Jews aren't, but so many Gentiles are responding to my preaching? Don't you love what God has to say to Elijah? There's not just you, Elijah. I've reserved 7,000. The contrast is so strong, isn't it? And the number 7,000 is so memorable. It feels large and it feels complete. It would be impossible to meet 7,000 people and remember all their names. Elijah's times were really dark for Israel. It did seem that the rulers and the structures and the rhythms of life in the northern kingdom had given up on the Lord. To be a faithful prophet was to be a wanted criminal. But God had not given up on them. Knock down the clown and it will get back up again. Press the ball underwater and it will burst to the surface. Sure, you can blow out the candle, but the flame will not die. Let's sit with that contrast for a minute. I am the only one left. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How big is the people of God? It's been a question that's been on my mind for weeks now as we've been reading Romans 9 to 11. On the one hand, the Bible seems to present discipleship as a minority option. The Lord chose Israel because they were the fewest of all peoples. Jesus tells a wedding banquet story that ends with a chilling exclusion, for many are invited but few are chosen. Jesus warns us that small is the gate, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and few find it. And the Old Testament word remnant that Paul uses in Romans 11 can make us picture something small and left over. These are important texts to pay attention to. We don't impress God by coming to him with great shows of strength and numbers and there really is a stubborn bias to sin in each one of us that means 
the life of obedience does often mean having to choose something different from what everyone around you is choosing. In our experience, minority language makes sense of the experience of discipleship. But let's look at reality from God's perspective for a minute. God took Abraham outside and asked him to look up at the night sky. And not a night sky confounded by the city lights, but a Coonabarra brand sky, a, a middle of the ocean sky, where you can understand why we call all of those stars the Milky Way. Because the stars are so many, they seem to be swirling like cream and they extend further and further and further away, away, away. Abraham, that's how many your descendants will be. That's how many people will follow your way and live as people of faith who will take me at my word and throw their whole lives and futures into the arms of my promises. So many that you won't be able to count them. God also took John into the heavenly realm to see a great multitude. He looked and there before me, he writes, was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the size of the people of God. And God has not lost control of history or forgotten his promises or lost his way. The darkness is not going to win. Well, our next story of darkness is one that Paul sees in Psalm 69. We read a bit of it earlier today. On the whole, it's a most distressing psalm. And as Christians, when we hear it, we hear not only the sufferings of King David, but the experience of Jesus as well. It begins, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Verse 4 of the psalm says, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. In a quote used of Jesus, the psalmist says a few verses on that zeal for your house consumes me. And in another reminder of the life and death of Jesus, the psalm says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. In Psalm 69, a godly person is being unfairly and cruelly mistreated by those who should know better. And so the psalmist cries the verses that Paul picks up. Verse 22, May the table set before them, my enemies, become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now the Psalms are vivid and shocking in the way they call down judgment on sinners and enemies. But the call is warranted. If God is a God of love and justice, he must act against the brutality and the injustice that the psalmist is facing. And the call is warranted in the Psalms because it's a call directed to God. The psalmist is acknowledging that putting the world right 
is God's business, is God's prerogative, is God's concern. Humans don't have the power always to seek out and extinguish evil. We often don't have the wisdom to discern what's right and fair. We, we don't know exactly how to put things right. And so the posture of faith very often is to say, God, you have to be the one who puts the world right. And the psalm has a word of assurance for those who would pray that way. It says, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. In fact, when the people of God get knocked down, they get back up again. When their candle is blown out, God wants to see them shine and he wants to light a flame for them again and again. Now, it seems as you read the psalm that some are going to resist God. They're going to stand against God's King and God's Messiah. They're going to remain in darkness. But the psalm ends also with visions of hope. Let heaven and earth praise God, the seas and all that move in them, says the psalmist, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell there. Yes, Paul is experiencing some Israelites who are hostile toward him and the Jesus that he preaches. And so like the psalmist, he invites the justice of God on them. But I think deep down, like the psalmist, he's longing for them to be saved. And of course, in a way, Paul is an Israelite who's experienced that in his own life. He was a cruel persecutor of the followers of Jesus. And Jesus really was a stumbling block for him. He, he met Jesus and you know, literally fell down and was literally blinded by Jesus. Paul had an experience of Jesus that was humbling and difficult, but transformative. And then he, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, found life in Christ. So Paul's reminding himself here from the Old Testament that it is not a new thing, that there are some from among Israel who are enemies of the gospel. It's always happened. And as an almost heartbroken evangelist, you can feel it in Romans 9 to 11, I think he's reminding himself that he does not and cannot have power to change the hearts and minds and wills of the people he's preaching to. As Paul reaches for words that might disturb us a little, words like elect or foreknown or hardened, he's expressing what the psalmist knew to be true, that it's not a human prerogative to shape the human heart and the human will. We can't shape the hearts and wills of others. God has a unique place in that. And that's why Paul accents grace so much here. He, he's, he, he just feels that God is the one who must work amongst these people who are rejecting the gospel. And so too at the present time there is a remnant of God's people chosen by grace, he says. And in 11.6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. God's saving work has always been about God's favour. God's act of rescue, God's generous prerogative, God's lavish gift. I think all this language of elect, 
foreknown, hardening and so on, is not there to make us think that human choices are an illusion. The thought's more subtle than that. It's there because Paul is expressing a confidence that, um, that he is, that the responsibility for how people respond to his preaching is something that sits with God and others and not with himself. He's expressing a confidence that God is purposeful and faithful and sovereign and that human beings need him to move toward them. We need a God whose mysterious purposes can involve blinding and hardening, but blinding and hardening very often in order to achieve a greater purpose of bringing insight and life to people. Paul is seeing the rejection of the gospel by some Israelites in the first century is opening up a way to preaching to the Gentiles. And he's got a, a further hope that the Israelites will get jealous and will turn to the Jesus that the Gentiles are embracing. So there are lessons here about tolerating the strange twists and turns of history without losing trust that God is at work. There are lessons here that we can't change people and so we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we can't. There are lessons here when we're tempted to think that we're alone as a person of God. That's what Paul or Elijah was tempted to think. The psalmist in Psalm 69 might have felt abandoned. And sometimes we do too. Maybe you think at the moment as you look at the church in Australia that the church is going to fail. Maybe you sense a time of darkness and you look at what COVID's doing to the world. You look, you look at the economic circumstances of the world and you know of missionaries who are where they want to be but they can't leave their house. There are some who are stuck overseas but in lockdown. There are some who've been forced to come home. Some are stuck here even though they want to be somewhere else on the other side of the world. There are churches across the world that can't physically meet at the moment. And many church members have grown despondent. There's some quite high statistics at the moment of people from congregations losing interest. There are church budgets under pressure. One study suggests that one in four pastors in America is thinking of resigning soon because they don't see much future. And we listen to the news and we overhear conversations with family and friends about enlightened views about gender or marriage or abortion. And we, we hear the sickening tales of abuse in churches. And we feel an increasing implausibility, a kind of loss of public legitimacy. A few decades ago, Christians were teased for being do-gooders. Maybe then Christians just became do-nothing kind of people. But now when the public talks about Christians, it's almost as though the church is a place that does harm to people through its old-fashioned and oppressive beliefs. If you were to look at Australian census data and Australian um, social trends, you might despair. And you might be saying to God, well... There's not many of us left. Or you might turn 
and listen to the God who says, I move toward people. I quicken people's hearts. I grant them life. And I do that with faithful, sovereign, merciful grace. I read just this week of some people who distribute Bibles in Iran. They're taxi drivers and Uber drivers. And one tells a story of picking up two people who are really tired and exhausted and discouraged. They were hospital workers and they were on the front line of COVID. And they'd seen so much human suffering and so much pain. They were disappointed in the government and they were disappointed in God. Well, the Christian taxi driver listened. He empathised. He, he you know, expressed understanding for the pain that they were feeling. But he also began to speak himself of a peace that was part of his life because of a relationship with a God of love and grace. Well, that, com that uh, taxi ride turned into a three-hour conversation. And those people, those hospital workers from Iran, came to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And they're, they're fresh new Christians who go into the hospital where there's so much hopelessness. And they pray and they hand out Bibles. And they're surrounded by people who are quite willing to hear the good news that they have to share. How big is the people of God? And where are they? Maybe you feel like you're on a losing team or you're just holding on to Jesus out of some faded loyalty. Maybe your life is repetitive and tedious and it just feels small and you don't feel like you contribute to anything much. Or you know where the story of the world is going. And you have a dream of being one among that multitude that praises Jesus. And that's the heartbeat of your life. So you surrender gladly to Jesus. And if people belittle your beliefs, you bounce back like a clown, like a ball breaking the surface of the water. There are days of self-denial and it feels hard, but you've come to see those steps of self-denial as steps into freedom and purpose because you know where this story is going and in everyday life you find yourself building and repairing cooking and gardening with enthusiasm and integrity because you've got a deep confidence that a new creation is coming filled with people who love Jesus and so you can't help but commend Jesus to everyone you meet because you so want them to be with you there on that last day. You walk in dark days, sure, but your life can have a captivating peace about it as you watch the flame of God's grace, as you watch the flame of God's purposes shine and shine and shine. Let's pray. Lord, write your magnificent and gracious story deeply into our lives. Amen.